Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we discuss a different topical safeguarding issue with a range of different guest speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us today. Really happy to be here with Dallas Lynch, who is the Deputy Head Safeguarding at Wellington College. Welcome, Dallas. Thank you very much. It's great to be here and thank you very much for asking me. No, it's really lovely to have you with us. So, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself before we get started? Yeah, so I've been teaching now since 1998. Um, so, biologists uh, by background um, started after well, I taught in Kingswood School in Bath and then moved up to Bromsgrove School, um, where I was a housemistress um, of a very large girls' boarding house um, for a couple of years. And then moved to Wellington um, in 2006. And it was quite an exciting move because um, I came down at the time the school was going co-ed. So I was one of the first female housemistresses at Wellington College um, and oversaw the, the whole transition between Wellington being a boys school with just a very small number of girls in the sixth form to being fully co-ed. And I've really travelled that journey um, in the school, which has it's been really interesting, actually and really insightful and um, it's been fascinating to see a school going from being so traditional um, boys focused to actually bringing the girls in as well. Um, I joined the senior leadership team in 2010 as deputy head pastoral and then really seeing how safeguarding was going we made a very brave decision in 2017 to actually split the safeguarding from the pastoral side safeguarding was becoming bigger it was becoming an area of the school which needed more strategy and more focus and it was impossible to do the day-to-day management and the firefighting of the pastoral side of things in such a large school where 1100 pupils um, alongside um, the safeguarding as well so um, so I moved across and became deputy head safeguarding and uh, we had a, a, a different person doing the day-to-day pastoral side of the things. So, so it's worked really, really well, actually. It's enabled us to focus um, on safeguarding in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do beforehand. So that's kind of me, really. Wonderful. That's really interesting um, that you've divided the safeguarding and the pastoral into two different um, aspects, I guess. Just for our listeners who maybe don't know the difference, do you mind doing a quick explanation of the difference between the day-to-day pastoral issues and then the safeguarding issues? Yep, so my colleague who oversees the pastoral side of things looks at, um, we've got boarding houses here, so they line manage the house masters and the house mistresses deal with the overall running of the pastoral side of the school matrons health center counseling team um whereas i very much lead up on the whole training side of things my role very much overarches teaching and non-teaching side of things as well we've got a big staff here we've got about 600 staff Oh wow! Um, okay. <laughs> um, so you know, in terms of part-time, full-time, grounds department, catering, domestics, um, and so in terms of safeguarding, those individuals have got just as equal amount part to play on safeguarding as the teaching staff have as well. So leading on that, but also on the student side of things, um, we're we're working on at the moment a safeguarding curriculum for the students. Um, looking at what sort of things that they should know about um, 
and how we marry that in with everything else that we do here. And I also do a big piece of work with parents as well. Um, my whole philosophy on safeguarding, I think I'm quite, I wouldn't say I'm unique, but I think I'm quite an interesting person in that I have now made safeguarding my life's work, if that makes sense. Um, having it as a standalone role has enabled me to do that and I'm also quite unique in that I'm very passionate about it. So it's not just a bolt on from me. This is this is something that I see as core to my whole being and my whole existence. And, and one of the reasons for that, and I've actually spoken about this openly, is that um, about three or four weeks before my father died. So this would have been in 2014. We were watching a documentary about Jimmy Savile um, mm. and. And I just turned to him and I said, I just can't believe that he was allowed to get away with everything. And my dad turned to me and without a miss of a heartbeat, he said, I can because it happened to me. Oh, and I said, I said, gosh, what, what happened to you? And he told me about how he was sexually abused at prep school. Um, so he'd gone to boarding school as a boy and uh, it was the first time he had ever told anybody about it. And I don't know whether it was because he knew that he was dying of cancer and he felt able to talk about that. So I was already doing a lot of safeguarding then, but now it's become it's become very personal. It's become very real as well for me. So I I certainly start all my talks with I don't want anybody to have to go through what he went through. And having, you know, a child myself now, I want to make the world just a much safer place for young people. Um, and using that experience that he had in order to frame and shape that um, in terms of how we train our staff and, and make sure that they are thinking that it's something that could be happening um, at Wellington. I think um, you've touched on some really important points here where we talk about how safeguarding is really the responsibility of everyone. Yeah. And I think a lot of people assume like, oh, we've got our safeguarding lead. They're in charge of safeguarding. It's their job. But in reality, like you said, all 600 of your staff members are equally as responsible for safeguarding and noticing concerns about the students and about each other as well. And because well done. It's amazing the work you're doing. And it's really amazing to talk to someone like yourself who's so passionate about the role, because I think you're right. And I think it is really something that you can get behind, because at the end of the day, you are going to keep children and young people safe from harm. And that harm could be as serious as sexual assault and abuse and it could be on the other end of the spectrum just bullying and smaller issues but in the whole like it's just such an important role so it is and plus it's evolved so much you know back is, yeah. when I first took, took the role on um my safeguarding training was about the four types of abuse um, yeah. and how to report it and, and that was kind of about it really but now when you look at everything that we're covering within safeguarding it's it's huge it's vast and and organizations are having to adapt to that and think about how they they present that and um you know i hope the staff at wellington would tell you that one of the things that we try and make safeguarding um here is fun mm -hmm. um although it's got a very serious undertone and, it, and obviously the implications of it are really really serious you've got to make the training and you've got to make the subject content relevant but you've also got to make it fun as well no exactly because otherwise i think you're right and some of the subject matter that we deal with can be quite dark mm. and it can be quite upsetting so when you're surrounded by this every day it is important to try to make um 
like you said, make it fun and make people able to connect with it in yeah. a way. Yeah. So while we're on the subject, I think the main reason we really wanted to talk to you today is about low-level concerns. Yeah. So just right off the bat, can you tell me what a low-level concern is? Yeah, so um, we've been talking about low-level concerns at Wellington for uh, a number of years, actually. Um, We've had a low-level concerns policy in place since 2016. And um, it really is just, um, it's a kind of broad set of behaviours, which where you've got a kind of niggling doubt about um, someone's behaviour, someone's actions. Um, At Wellington, it's very easy for us because it's, not only when some, a member of staff might do something or an adult might do something that doesn't quite fit with our staff code of conduct, but we're also a values-based organisation. Um, and so it's a really easy framework for us. So it's when a member of staff um, shows behaviours that don't fit or align with our values. OK, could you give me a couple of examples of mm-hmm. low-level concerns? Yeah, so... Um, I'll talk about it in terms of values based first of all. So our courage, respect, integrity, responsibility and kindness. And so if we just take one of those values to start with, let's talk about um, kindness. Uh, A low level concern could simply be an example of a member of staff not not being kind to a student. So that could be um, them raising their voice in an inappropriate way. It might be putting um, inappropriate expectations on a student. Um, if we then take another value such as integrity, it could be a member of staff lying, not fulfilling responsibilities. Okay. Um, so a whole range of things, really. Seeing a member of staff hugging a student um, it could be um, well-being issues as well. Um, so particularly if a member of staff might be struggling in some particular way, um, that we, we consider those to be low-level concerns because there have been quite a few incidents of safeguarding issues within schools where, whereby they have occurred because a member of staff has simply um, had some huge issue within their within their life that means that their well-being has been affected and therefore they make poor judgment um and, and, and often those poor judgment decisions can be reflected in some sort of safeguarding um concern or safeguarding issue staff conduct issues as well um and, and also repeated low level um types of behavior so missing deadlines you know missing report deadlines and things like that so that's a really broad spectrum um, of behaviours. And we introduced low-level concerns off the back of Marcus Aruga's work, um, who's done quite a lot of research about offending in organisations. Um, and what struck me when I heard him talk was something he calls the slippery slope, and that any abuser, particularly situational or opportunistic abusers, they violate other boundaries before they abuse because what they're doing is they're kind of sussing out the culture within the organisation. Um, and that's how we introduced it at Wellington. We actually introduced it off the back of his work um, and looking at it not only from a safeguarding perspective, but looking at the culture as a whole. Because if you've got individuals who are violating these boundaries, you know, missing report deadlines, not really doing their role professionally as they could be, then that's got knock-on implications across the whole organisation, yes. um, not just within safeguarding, I think. 
Of course. It's interesting because I know when we talk about safeguarding at the safeguarding company, we like to talk about all the concerns you notice are almost the bits of the puzzle, yeah. like the pieces, and yeah. then it puts together an overview of the safeguarding issues. And I guess what you're saying about the slippery slope, like you said, offenders start with small little things, mm. like you said, to test boundaries to see, like, okay, if that goes unnoticed, no one's reporting that, then I might be able to get away with more severe things. Absolutely. And what also happens within that um, whole spectrum that you've just talked about there is the normalisation. Yes. Um, so very, very quickly, that up, that really yeah, you, you get this creep. Um, so if you, um, so it's in, within health and safety, it's called failure drift. So there's anything that ever happens that is an enormous sort of health and safety catastrophe that's ever happened has normally happened because of failure drift. And it's just been the gradual creeping in of um, small behaviours which don't make much of a difference. And then suddenly it's become normalised and it's those normalisations of of behaviours, I think, particularly in organisational settings, that um, that those are the worrying things. And and particularly within individuals. So what begins to happen is, I don't know, let's talk about a member of staff that is prone to raising their voice at colleagues and at young and at students. Um, What happens if they do it regularly, their colleagues start to say, oh, that's just James. He always shouts. He's, that's what he's like. And that's what he's yeah. like. And, and, and we've got to challenge those behaviours. And I think the low level concerns work and the policy that, that the DfE brought in in September has enabled us to have those conversations um, and given us a framework um, around around that. Uh, I always say to um I do a one-to-one induction with all the new staff that start here. And I say to them, you are my biggest asset. Because those new members of staff coming in will will challenge things and will say things and will notice unusual things. And I just say, look, open door for two weeks. Come and tell me about anything you think is unusual, things that you spotted, because after those two to three weeks, you'll start to normalise it. Yeah. And I think it's really important, like you said, having this open culture where people feel like it's okay to go and report things that they're concerned about and these nagging doubts without being worried of someone going, oh, well, like you said, that's James. James is like that and he's always been here for so long and that's just how he is. And I guess people don't want to feel like they're telling tales. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's so interesting that it goes back to childhood when you're told, you don't fear narc, you can't behave like that, you can't turn other people in. Like we're in some weird club and you can't tell on each other. But really what we're doing here with low-level concerns, it's not tattling per se. It's like you said, mm-hmm. having these doubts and questioning the behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think another another really big important part of the work that we've done here is actually reframing that slightly with staff and saying that it's much easier to have a conversation with a member of staff when they've got something wrong, which is a low-level concern. And first of all, let, you know, if they're a potential abuser, you have a conversation about it, and they've thought, right, my behaviour has been noticed. Therefore, almost kind of that's job done in that respect. The behaviour's been noticed. Therefore, this is not an environment that I'd be able to get away with something. Yes. I think a really important piece of this conversation as well is a member of staff actually realizing that the behavior that they're doing is wrong before they get something so wrong that it's not a low level concern anymore but it becomes a staff disciplinary 
Um, And so, you know, several conversations that I've had with members of staff over the last five or six years have been a bit of a checking point for them to say, you know what, the fact that you're doing this regularly isn't is, is a low level concern, but you need to stop doing this before it becomes much more serious. And nine times out of 10, those members of staff have actually been really grateful for those conversations. Yeah. Um, because it's enabled them to stop doing something which could get them into a potential um, difficulty later on. I think as well, just going back to what you said about normalisation, not only does it happen to the people around you, but for that person, mm. that behaviour almost becomes normalised. That is so like. true. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that's a great observation exactly. as well. Exactly. Like yeah. You don't realise, oh, maybe I shouldn't raise my voice at these children. But because you do it, you kind of do it unconsciously without noticing. Yeah, and the, the fact that no one has said anything to them about yeah. it, it makes them feel that it's okay to do it. And sometimes it's learned behaviour, isn't it? Like yeah, it is. We talk about ACEs a lot and mm-hmm. things being passed down from generations. And I guess if your parents spoke to you a certain way, sometimes unconsciously you'll start to talk to children in a similar way sometimes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. So moving on from low-level concerns, I wanted to ask you about self-referrals. Yeah. So they, they kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, they do. Um, and again, something that we introduced when we put the policy in, in in 2016 was about the fact that if a member of staff's got something wrong, let's have a really open culture here. Um, be vulnerable and and say what it is that's happened within a safe space. Um, and so we've we've had a, a very open um, self-referral, self-reporting system here now for about five or six years. Um, and that's when a member of staff um, either has is going to report something to me which um, is about to happen. So this could be something which might go against some staff guidance. So really good example of this would be we say that you're not allowed to travel with students in your car. Um But let's say there's a debating competition um, at the weekend. All the other students are going home from that competition with their parents. There's one student who lives overseas. Um, The member of staff will then write to me to ask for permission to bring that student home in their car. Um, And so we have a conversation about the fact that they should be sitting in the back. Um, Anything that unusual that happens within that should be self-reported. We get the uh, parental permission for that to happen. Um, so it's all above board. It's all open. Um, and, and so that's one example of a self-referral that might preempt something happening. Mm-hmm. Um, other self-referrals, members start swearing um, by mistake in a lesson. Um, we tend to get quite a few self-referrals at the end of term when staff are tired. Um, and so they, they just forget um, about things. Um, really interesting one actually only yesterday came up from a young member of staff. During a revision lesson, the, the students had asked for some music to play in the background. Um, she put up her Spotify list and totally had forgotten that there were three playlists up there that she'd bought into um, that were really inappropriately named. Yeah. <laughs> um, students said, oh, my gosh, look at your playlists. And um, she was mortified. She self-reported it and said, look, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm going to take them off. Um, and yeah, so those those are the sorts of things really that, that come up. I mean, I self-reported myself um, last year. I walked into one of our boarding houses to talk to a member of staff there 
and one of our um, 17-year-old boys walked out of the shower room. He'd oh. forgotten his towel and he was completely naked. Um, and so, again, I, I reported that um, to one of my deputy DSLs because the last thing I want to happen is for that boy to get home, say to his parents, oh, Mrs Lynch saw me naked um, walking exactly. around. That gets twisted around. Mrs Lynch looks at naked boys. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's all about that that culture of openness again as well. I think it's also protecting staff members, isn't it? Yeah. Like, so, like you said, certain things, when you hear them the wrong way, don't sound great. Yeah. And like you said, with that example of you and the 17-year-old, that could so easily be twisted. Mm-hmm. So, by you reporting it the same day and clarifying the story people think you can then know that there was no like malicious intent behind it that's right you know and the most exciting thing that happens um is when you get both so when a member of staff self-reports um and then a member of staff has reported it as a low-level concern as well because that to me is the system working in absolute harmony a member of staff knows they've got something wrong feels vulnerable and safe enough to come and self-report that but then a member of staff has also seen that happening and has also had the confidence to come and report that as well that's really good mm-hmm. i know this isn't the case but for some organizations would they worry that with the system it might create a bit of a culture of people needing to be like watched constantly like a policing culture because I, I guess you don't want it to go too far and people yeah. feel comfortable, do you? No, you don't. And I think that that's why I think it takes a while for a policy like this to be embedded. And I think the crucial thing is what is done with that information. Um, I listened to a podcast last week when um, somebody was talking about um, something had happened within an organisation and there'd been a really nasty accident. And the CEO had said to the company, you know, we need to know what happens. Um, whoever was behind this, I'd like you to come forward um, so that we can understand how we can prevent this from happening again. Then um, somebody did come forward, took a lot of courage to come forward. And the CEO said, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for coming forward. Um, it's given us a lot of information. Really appreciate it. You're fired. Oh, and so what does that say about the culture within that organisation? You speak up. And I think that, you know, over time, when staff see something like the low level concerns and self reports working and how it's benefited our community as a whole, they start to get trust in the system. Um, And what we've also seen as something that we never, ever expected to happen is that we have seen the culture of reporting being mirrored within our student body. Really? Yeah, so we do a cultural survey every year within um, within the students. We do it every three years with staff and students every year about their willingness to report things. Um, so it crosses a whole different range of um, categories that we look at. Um, and, and since um, 2015, we have seen that the willingness of students to report things has also increased. Um, so I've got no idea whether that is just... Uh, something that's happened anyway um, or whether it's linked to low level concerns but it's really fascinating to have seen that happen as well. Yeah you hope that it's linked to the open culture in Wellington College and 
like this is a this is the good side of normalization. Yeah, and they're seeing these really positive things happening, yeah. and then it's flowing down to the students, which is really amazing. It is. Just, that's right. And we've got something at Wellington um, that we call Values Guardians. So they they sit within safeguarding, and, and what they do is they champion the values. Um, and so if people have seen a member of staff doing something and they're not quite sure whether they should report it, they can go and have a, a conversation with a values guardian and they wear different coloured lanyards to identify mm-hmm. them. Um, and that's um, enabled conversations to happen between the values guardians and, and students. And they said, oh, why do you wear a different lanyard and so staff have explained to the students what their role is and they've kind of gone that's a really good idea we didn't know that staff could report things like that as well so that's kind of helped that conversation as well I think. Definitely I think another part of safeguarding like you said it's not just the education and training of your staff and parents but also for children to enable them to have the skills to also start to safeguard themselves and each other. Yeah yeah. A lot of the reports that were happening last year were on peer-on-peer abuse. Mm. And with some of the stats coming out, it's really obvious that a lot of people see it. But it's so normalised in our culture, no one reports it. So hopefully with your peers, if you know something's wrong, sometimes it's better to be told by your peers that that behaviour is not appropriate rather than from an authority like a teacher or a parent. Yeah, that's right. And actually giving them the language behind that's really important. And that's something that we're hoping to build in a little bit more next year so that students have the confidence to say, look, I saw you do that. It just really wasn't right that you did that. This is the reason why. And I'm telling you because I would hate for you to get into trouble with a member of staff or or a teacher or whatever that might look like. So, yeah, so that's, that's a piece of work that we'd like to look at next year and how we might follow that up. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one that a lot of schools are trying to unpick and understand a bit more about. Um, I should let you know about, um, have you heard of a company called Life Lessons? No, no, I haven't. I'll let you know about them. We did um, episode two with um, Nicole, who's the co-founder, and they go into schools to help staff talk to students about sex education and relationships. Mm -hmm. And when I spoke to her, one of the things she said was, like like I said before, um, peers talking to each other is sometimes more powerful than teachers yeah talking about behavior because from that's a right yeah. we, we've been working with an external company as well called colorful peach um and and that's been around the whole idea of um sexual um harassment sexual violence and having um those conversations and um we're actually training up students to actually run workshops themselves so that yes. it's them educating each other and i, I totally agree it's really powerful Definitely. We've spoken about it a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, what are some other reasons that staff may not want to report low-level concerns about each other? Yeah, gosh. Um, And again, so uh, reflective of what students say um, as well. So when when we've asked staff about this, they they don't want to get colleagues into trouble. Yeah. Um, And they don't want to... um, be maybe the first one to say something. I think there's something in in that if if somebody is doing something, the feeling that someone else will report it. It's um, like a bystander effect, doesn't yeah, it? Definitely yeah, definitely bystander. And, and the other concept which I talk quite a lot to our staff about is willful blindness. Mm. The fact that you can turn a blind eye to something, um, and the more you turn that blind eye to something, um, it just becomes easier uh, to do over time um, yeah. as well. Because again, you've normalised it. 
Um, I think in a in a culture like ours, where we're a boarding school and we've got lots of staff that live on site, it can be very difficult to um, report behaviours about a friend yeah. who might live down the road to you um, or, you know, who you socialise quite a lot with. Um, so that can be very difficult. I think if the concern happens to be about a senior colleague, yes, that can be really tricky um, to do that and, and, and maybe worry about it not being taken seriously. Um, I think that sometimes staff just don't recognise when somebody's got something wrong. I mean, that could be down to the normalisation effect as well, but also their own interpretation of what they've seen. I'm always um, something just coming to my mind now. I'm always very. Um, I always remember listening to the British Medical Council once saying that the, the overwhelming response from a doctor when they see a colleague do something inappropriate in medicine is to cover it up. Mm. Um, and I think that taking that kind of mindset and translating it into teaching a little bit as well is probably everyone's overwhelming response is when you see a colleague doing something wrong is to actually think that it's not wrong. Because you want to believe the best in people. Um, mm. And I think that in caring professions in particular, we always want to think that maybe we've not seen it quite right. And we try and explain it in a more positive way um, because we don't think that our colleagues would want to do something like that. I think as well. We are always told, like, you know, there are two sides to every story mm. and you shouldn't just assume things and we should get the story straight before we report. And it's the um, innocent until proven guilty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, the concern that if they do say something, then it could be like career ending or, yeah. you know, or something like that. And I think really important on the low level concern side of things that unless it is, you know, really going to cross that safe hold, safeguarding threshold, um, that the, the conversations that you can have with staff are really, really helpful and see it as professional learning. Um, but obviously, you know, if it has crossed the threshold, if it's clearly safeguarding, then actually you've got young people at risk. And that's really, really important to um, to address that. Wonderful. We've talked a little bit about staff not wanting to report concerns because not wanting their colleagues to get into trouble. Mm. What about on the other end of that, when you get reports that come in that might just be untrue or malicious? Like yeah, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, in the last six years, we have had one or two incidents, and it tends to be where there's been a relationship breakdown um, between two colleagues. And where that has happened, if it's come through as a low level concern, obviously, we've sort of investigated it and then closed it and we've moved it usually into the realms of HR to look at. Um, we have got several staff here trained in um, mediation. It's what we call dialogue road mapping here, and we try and repair relationships between staff if this has happened. So we move it into into that area. Um, and I think. I suppose it's about reassuring staff that if something like that does happen, then it's fully investigated and it's never put on a, a personnel record or a reference or anything like that. Um, and to make them realise that, that that no harm has been done. I guess it goes with the open culture, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Not just do we have an open culture in our organisation, but staff can be assured that every concern is going to be investigated properly. And yeah. 
people will be protected if they're untrue. Yeah, that's right. And again, it's about building that trust, isn't it? It's about the individuals involved in the process. Um, yeah. and, and if they trust in the process and they can see it working um, and know that there is due process that goes on within it, then I think the idea of, of reporting something that isn't true or being malicious, they, they're probably thinking, well, actually, I, I don't want to yeah. spoil the process by by doing that of course uh, yeah you mentioned um something you mentioned before leads really well into the next question i had to ask you um, we talked about hr so within low-level concerns and the management and the reporting of them where does hr sit because i know there are a lot of people out there that feel oh issues with staff that should be an hr issue not a safeguarding issue yeah gosh that is such a good question and it's a really good point as well. And I think there's, first of all, there's a dialogue between them. So HR and safeguarding, safeguarding and HR. So really important to have a strong relationship, I think, with the HR department, not only because it costs up so much over in recruitment as well. I meet with our director of HR once a week um, and it's just really about that information flow. So. If it's um, a low level concern uh, which has come to me, which has got no, I don't think it's got anything that needs to be followed through within HR at all, then it, I might not even raise it. Um, if HR do get involved when it becomes a pattern of behaviour, um, and so it may well be that I say, look, this is now the third low level concern for an individual. Um, I might have a conversation on a no names basis. Um, and so what would you advise here? What do you think we should do going forwards? Um, and we have a really good discussion about it. Um, and it may well be that at that point that actually it's moved from being a low level concern to being a more serious concern because it's a pattern of behaviour that that individual is not learning from. Yeah. The HR department then are usually brilliant in that, that, that we can look at all sorts of different ways of helping them. Um, of course, you've got to remember as well that a whole series of low level concerns can come in because somebody, somebody simply isn't coping with their job. Yeah. Um, and actually, when they see a supportive conversation happening, some, you know, we've had incidents here over the last couple of years where a member of staff has just completely broken down and has just, you know, confided in us that they've got relationship issues, um, mental health issues. And what we've been able to do is we've been able to help them yes. uh, and not go down a disciplinary route, but go down a really supportive route as well. Yeah, like put those things in place to then yeah. give the staff member the support that they need. That's yeah. right. And that has come about as a result of low level concerns um, being reported. So um, and also, you know, dialogue between HR as well. So my director of HR might say, look, we're looking at staff disciplinary at the moment. This is the member of staff concerned. This is what's happened. Um, and I'll go, actually, yeah, that is a low level concern. I'm going to um, we use confide at Wellington. So I'll, I'll put that on confide so that it's there as a record. Um, and and if somebody else happens to report a concern about that member of staff as well, it's it's on my radar as well. So that took me into the next point. I think um, it's really great just listening to you talk about that, because not only is a low level concern, a concern a staff member has about behaviour of staff to students, but also actual concerns about staff members' well-being as well. I think it's quite nice to hear that so that it's not necessarily a negative concern. Like the behaviour is negative, but like That's more right. actually worried about you and how you're coping with things. Yeah, it does. And it 
certainly from my perspective, um, I think that one of the, the benefits of using Confide is when we put somebody on Confide about well-being is that they're up there. And so when I look at my dashboard, they're, they're constantly I'm being reminded of them and going back, just maybe sending an email to their head of department. How is um, X at the moment? And, and to making that regular check in. So that's been yeah. really good. But uh, I became acutely aware about staff well-being when I um, I did some research about abuse within boarding schools um about five years ago now um and i one of the cases that i looked at um was a member of staff who'd had a significant trauma in his life um and but the school had been his life and that can very often be the case within boarding schools if you've um if you've been in a boarding school you, you become quite institutionalized um and He'd worked in a boarding school for about 30 years and and it was very much his life um, apart from his family. He had this very significant trauma um, and he wanted to come back to work straight away. School said, yeah, okay, maybe you should take some time off. He said, I don't want to want to go back to work. What ended up happening is he he formed quite uh, an intimate relationship with a student because Uh he was he was gaining a lot of affirmation. Um, from that student doing lots of one-to-one work with them and the boundary moved from being teacher to student to overlapping and becoming grey and he ended up having an inappropriate relationship and when we look back at that case actually that member of staff's well-being if that had been flagged and had been looked at in a really um, supportive way and things being put into place to help that member of staff, I don't think that boundary would have been crossed because somebody would have been looking out for them. So I think that looking after someone's mental health and well-being is really important from a safeguarding perspective. It also feeds into their open culture about, Mm. you know, we care about your mental health and well-being, and if it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. And if you need, we can have extra support here for you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, So I always remember that. Um, and just remember how important it is to sometimes have to step in and make decisions um, yeah. for members of staff and maybe if they what they think might be the right decision for them might actually not be the right decision for the organisation as a whole or for the students who they're looking after. Yeah. Um, I've only got one more question for you and it's about anonymous reporting. Mm. So is that something that you allow at Wellington College for staff members to report anonymously? Yeah, it happens um, quite infrequently, I have to say. So that would be done very much. So the only way that a member of staff could report anonymously is through our values guardian system here. And it still isn't truly anonymous. Yeah. Um, So they would go to a values guardian. They would say, look, I've got this concern about this member of staff, but I don't want the senior leadership to know it's me that's come forward. So what happens then is the values guardian is seen as a kind of middleman. Um, okay. They come and have a chat with me. We talk about what should happen and then they go back and they have a chat with that member of staff. But we always work towards that member of staff feeling comfortable enough to come and talk to me about what it is. In person, um, yeah. So they usually use the values guardians just to sort of test the water a little bit and see what might happen. I mean, we've never had... Um, anybody report something through anonymously um like leaving a letter on your desk or anything like that yeah no i i we haven't actually um i mean maybe that is because of 
the trust and the culture that we've built up here. Um, I can actually remember back to about 2012 that we had a letter written about um, a member of staff. But I remember that we were already quite aware of that individual's behaviours anyway. Um, and, And I think it was more of a case that the work that was going on behind the scenes probably wasn't being people didn't know what was happening so much of this stuff is so confidential that they might have thought that nothing was happening but actually something was happening so yeah and I think that with anonymous reporting we have it within the students we use um, a a system called whisper um, where students can anonymously report things and we found that to be really beneficial um, we get through a lot of things from please can we have more fish fingers at lunchtime <laughs> to my uh, maths teacher is setting me too much homework to my maths teacher said this in a lesson the other day and it was really inappropriate. Staff could use that, I guess, if they wanted to, but they've, yeah. they've, they've never have done. Because like you said, if you've got this open culture where people feel comfortable talking to each other and talking to you about low level concerns mm-hmm. without this worry of I'm going to get someone into trouble I'm going to my friend's going to hate me when they find out it's me I guess that need for reporting anonymously kind of goes away that's right yeah and I would certainly say that we we don't get it right all the time (laughs) I'm not sitting here and um, describing some sort of amazing safeguarding utopia Um, and and I think the moment that you start to become complacent about safeguarding is the moment that something goes wrong Um, What I am able to do is I'm able to look back at the journey that we've travelled over the last six years. Um, I think we are in in a culture now where staff do feel more trusted, if you like, to actually raise things, um, maybe more psychologically safe, a more psychologically safe environment to do that. Um, But we learn daily. Every day, a member of staff will say something that I think that we might be able to learn from that we can use. And we very often use um, our low level concerns in scenarios um, so that staff can see what they actually look like. Um, We'll use self-report so that staff can see what they look like. Um, And I will also report back to staff about the numbers coming forward as well. Um, And silly little things, you know, when we reached um, 100 self-reports this academic year, um, we we gave uh, a small prize to that member of staff that had put in that hundredth report. So yeah. not only was it people thinking, oh wow, gosh, a hundred reports, but they could see that there was a kind of a light-hearted aspect to that as well. So. Yeah, it's kind of that better be safe than sorry, isn't it? Like mm. you said, a lot of the things being self-referred probably aren't serious at all. But it's like we mentioned earlier in the podcast about the way it looks from other people's points of view. Yeah. You want to just remove that danger from the situation and move the inappropriateness that could be construed by other people. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? I mean, we've all, we talk about Jahari window, don't we? And about the that kind of unknown part of you. And unless somebody tells you that you're doing something wrong, sometimes people don't know if, what it is that they're doing wrong. You know, I always say you don't know what you don't know. Um, exactly. So yeah, yeah I, I think, think as and well. I think we can all benefit professionally from that. Oh, definitely. I think what you've done. It sounds like you've created a really amazing open culture at Wellington College. And yeah, thank you for telling me about all the work you guys have been doing. It sounds really amazing. It is, and it's, I just think it throws a different light on safeguarding as well. You know, you're moving away from the traditional, we use classes yeah. that safeguarding side of things, and you're actually looking more at 
how positive behaviours and positive actions can benefit the whole community, but not yeah. just within safeguarding as well. That it's the knock-on effects really that it has, which can benefit in a whole variety of different ways. I really like the word you use there, community, like mm-hmm. taking it out of the organisation and everyone is responsible for looking after each other. It just makes it feel more like a community unit rather than I just work here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I would with my safeguarding hat on, I'd say there's dangers in that as well. So we have to, have to talk about a professional community um, and, and make because, again, again, a, a potential abuser could really exploit that exactly um and so we tread that fine balance all the time don't we like walking a tightrope isn't it yeah yeah but it's the awareness i think you know a key word to come out of this podcast is having the awareness um um, about it is 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 really crucial perfect i think that's everything from me did you have any last thoughts before we finish up only that it takes time yeah, um, and, and you know, if, if, if you're watching this, and if you're a DSL or uh, somebody within your organisation that's involved in safeguarding, um, don't lose heart. You know, just keep going. Um, I, you know, sometimes I felt like it's been like turning the Titanic, um, and as I said, I still we're, we're not there, and I don't think we'll ever be there because schools have turnovers of staff of students, and um, just knowing that what you are doing on a day-to-day basis could be making such a difference to young people um, just gives you that continued motivation and renewed enthusiasm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Della. I've really enjoyed talking to you. This has been a really just fascinating conversation. So thank you so much. Thanks, George. I've enjoyed talking to you as well. Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding Podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com.